The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hi, and welcome to The Exchange, a conversation on business, finance, and economics brought to you by Breaking Views, the opinion service of Reuters. I am Lisa Yucca, a financial economist based in Milan, and will take you on a virtual journey across the globe. Companies including Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca are developing vaccines against COVID-19 that look strikingly effective. These may soon be available for distribution, but how do you get billions and billions of vaccine vials to the four corners of the world? To understand that, I interviewed Robert Coyle, the Senior Vice President for Pharma and Healthcare, a Swiss-based freight giant, Kuhner und Nagel. Prior to that, he was a drug maker GSK for 20 years and knows the ins and outs of vaccine logistics. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the exchange. I know you're in St. Simon's Island, Georgia, and uh, uh, so kind to devote uh, a little bit of your busy time uh, to us to discuss the mechanics and the challenges of uh, delivering the new COVID-19 vaccines. Um, you're obviously in charge of organizing the delivery of pharmaceutical and healthcare products across the world for Kuhne und Nagel, which, as we know, is a logistics giant operating in more than 100 countries. You're obviously very familiar with the requirements for delivering regular vaccines, but you know we get a sense that with COVID-19, Uh, we may need to deploy billions of these new vaccines to the four corners of the globe in a very short period of time. So help us understand how companies like Kuhn and Nagel are preparing to meet the challenges of bringing the new vaccines next year. Well, thank you, Lisa, and thanks for having me here today. I really um, have enjoyed uh, our conversations, and it's a great question. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Kuninago, I joined Kuninago in March 2018. And when we when I started, we put together a pretty aggressive plan to grow our Kuninago pharma healthcare business. And while the pandemic wasn't part of our strategy, it has definitely set us up well. Uh, so as part of the planning, and in many ways, the capacity that we were building to grow our business is is very helpful right now as we start looking at you know capacity constraints globally. Um, as a result of the pandemic, we had been planning for that capacity for growth, and now we're able to use that as part of our pandemic and COVID-19 vaccine response. I would also yes. say, Lisa, last year too, we, mm-hmm. when I remember in January, I was sitting in LA uh, catching a bus uh, to go get my rental car, and a family um, flew in and had masks on. And I think that alerted me. We put in place right away uh, a task force that started looking at medically critical revenue, critical product, got into PPE, and then over the summer spent a lot of time with my team building up our knowledge of the COVID-19 vaccine uh, uh, needs. And I think that allowed us to get into our solutions and start looking at investments and getting our team prepared to be able to handle what was coming uh, now. As we see in the public, a lot of the products that are going through clinical are starting to get some good results. And I feel very prepared to be able to move that product around the world. Okay, I mean, c- can you give us a few practical examples, you know, of 
how you know that building of additional capacity has has worked in practice. I have read recently that uh, I believe in two airports, Brussels and Johannesburg, uh, Kuna and Nagel has uh, built additional um, additional storage space. I mean, obviously, I, I I'm not using the technical word here, but uh, additional storage space really next to you know the the the, the airport basically to right. to move uh, stuff around. I mean, just give us a few examples. Yeah, I'd love to, Lisa. And, and and what's great about the the example you just shared that was part of our overall global strategy, as I mentioned earlier as our, our plan to, to grow our pharma healthcare business. And it obviously came in and will be in play to help with the COVID-19 vaccine response. But if I go through the key solutions, the key areas that we're gonna use to for our COVID-19 response, if I got to air logistics, a lot of that really comes into our investments in our connections with our carriers and making sure that they have as much information as possible to be able to pull forward uh, any planes or any freighters that are needed uh, to transport goods now and when the COVID-19 vaccine starts to be deployed. Um, one of the investments we made in our air logistics area is uh, what we call our air side solution. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it gives us access to the tarmac. Um, and if for those supply chain folks out there, you understand having access to the tarmac is, is that tarmac is usually a point where there could be temperature deviations. So our company has identified uh, 32 airports globally that have that airside solution. We're going to try to funnel all of our COVID-19 vaccines through those airports because with that airside solution, we can ensure that um, if there's any risk of any temperature deviations, we can jump in right away. And that's a very important investment for us as part of this response. A road logistics, Lisa, as you can imagine, is going to play a key element of that. Uh, the trucks that will be moving this product around and uh, we've been making investments as part of our growth plan. We've actually actually ratcheted that up and brought in uh, more trailers, for example, in Europe, uh, brought in a couple more, more relationships, carriers in North America, and also looked at expanding EMEA in Africa as well to be able to handle this surge uh, when, we, when we see the COVID-19 vaccine hit the market. So another area of our investments has been in, in our warehousing area. Obviously, with the temperature ranges that everyone can read about in the newspapers and uh, media uh, of having deep frozen minus 20 and 2 to 8, it's very important for us to have that flexibility around our network. Um, so what we've done is at Kuninaga, we've made a significant investment in our warehousing capability in Europe, in the, specifically in Liège, Belgium, where we'll have a hub that can support all three of those temperature ranges and have the flexibility to move amongst those ranges if the requirements from our customers change. Meaning if initially a product is launched into the market at deep frozen and then is able to get uh, stability data that would move that product into a different range, a minus 20 or two to eight, then we would have the flexibility to move around that space within Europe. And we were making, similar investments in the US as well as in Asia to have that flexibility of warehousing space. And we think that's uh, gonna be a differentiator for us um, as we help support our customers to be able to get vac vaccines across the globe. Okay, Rob, I mean, this, um, this, this is quite interesting and you've introduced the issue of the, the ultra low temperature that are required for certain types of vaccines. I mean, for instance, the Pfizer vaccine is is one of those. But um, I mean, does 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 it mean that uh, 
let's say, developing countries or very warm countries may not be able to use or access uh, um, those vaccines requiring the sort of, you know, super cold type of temperatures? You know, Lisa, it's a good question. It's one I get a lot of. And I think one thing I will say, I've been in the pharma healthcare space, and Lisa, you know my background. Before Cunanago, I was with a very large pharma company that handled a lot, that shipped a lot of vaccines around the globe. And um, and if you look at some of the companies that are launching their COVID-19 vaccines, a lot of the supply chain folks will say, this is what we do every day. And it is what we do every day. So we're shipping deep frozen minus 22 to 8, and we've been doing it for years. So I, I feel quite confident that we have the network and the capacity to be able to handle that. I think the question becomes very interesting when you start to look into the developing markets, as you mentioned. Um, and the key element, and you've seen some of the recent announcements from different companies, which have been great data on the efficacy of the product, but it really comes down to that stability question in market. So uh, some of the companies, for example, are publishing you know, five days stability at refrigerated temperatures, others 30 days. And then I think as recent as yesterday, one of the companies published that the product, their product will be at two to eight, which is refrigerated temperatures as well. So I think what, what comes into play that's key if for the developing markets is how much time they're gonna have in more of a, a refrigerated environment to be mm -hmm. able to administer the product to the patients. Um, and, and I think we're seeing enough products now coming out that uh, you know, through the clinical trials and knock on wood, they get their approval, but there'll be enough products. And I think there'll be certain products for certain markets um, and maybe other products that come that are released that are better fit into those developing markets. But I'm quite confident in the solutions that we've put together, especially for our air freight, our air logistics solutions, confident that we can touch just about every country, if not every country that needs the, the vaccines once they're they're approved. Okay. I mean, is it is it fair to say that most of the delivery or the bulk of the delivery will will happen by air freight with with the large chunk also by trucks, maybe regionally, but not so much seafare because uh, because of the length that you know we would require in in bringing the vaccines to the places needed. Lisa, we've worked with several analysts, and we've actually built our own model as well to take a look at the network and. When I say look at the network, we're looking at where our customers are, are man manufacturing their drug substance, where they're doing their fill finish for their drug product, and then looking at um, where the population that needs the vaccine. And based on that, we think between 50 and 60% of the vaccines will be sh shipped via air uh, around the globe. And then the remainder would be mainly road logistics, as you pointed out. From a sea logistics standpoint, we're not seeing a lot of demand, obviously, because uh, from a vaccine standpoint, it, it's going to be timing. As we talked about the temperature ranges, et cetera, it's going to be we're going to want to get that product out into the market as quickly as possible. Where we are seeing a lot of sea logistics come in, especially now in preparation, is I think everyone, it's important for everybody to remember that it's not just about the vaccine and the vial, but you need a syringe, you need PPE. You might need an alcohol swab. So there's different components that have to come together for that it, it, when you administer it to the patient. Um, and we're seeing a lot of activity in our warehousing as well as our sea logistics for, for example, syringes to get the countries ready for when that vaccine hits the market. 
So let's focus on air freight a little bit more. Um, Salisbury Consulting, which is part of Accenture, says that the global rollout of the vaccines will be five times higher than normal, let's say, vaccine delivery in any given year. So I, I'm just, first of all, asking you whether this is a, a sort of estimate that Kuhn and Naga also has and, and whether you think there's going to be enough capacity um, you know, to, to deal with, with that additional demand. Elisa, we work quite closely, closely with Seabury. And I've spent uh, several meetings with them, comparing models and, and assumptions. And uh, we we landed on a very similar spot as far as our estimates go. So uh, they have estimated around 65,000 tons of, of vaccine will be needed to supply the globe. Uh, and we're very much in line with that. Uh, when you start looking at capacity um, and comparing it within the air logistics space. And I'll, I'll use 2019 as a comparator because it's been tough with 2020 with the changes in capacity due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're talking about here less than 1% impact on the overall air capacity from 2019 when we look at just the COVID-19 vaccines and about a 10% of the pharma healthcare uh, capacity. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, we we have been spending a lot of time, and it's just it's not theory, but we've been spending a lot of time talking to our carriers and our and our relationships. Kunanagel is, is one of the largest air freight air logistics companies in the globe. Um, we've sat down with many of our key carriers uh, to look at their freighter capacity, as well as potentially bringing some of the passenger airplanes back into some of the routes to to use that belly capacity for for vaccines. So we, we feel very comfortable that the planning that we've done up until this point will be able to, to, to supply, supply the market once those products become viable. Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit. I mean, this is quite interesting, actually. We, we had discussed it in the past, but tell me a little bit about the possibility of commercial airlines using their unused planes, you know, sort of gutting them and using them. For, for cargo, basically. I mean, is this a concrete plan? I mean, are you already having conversations with some of these airlines to somehow, you know, build that additional capacity that we've been discussing? Yeah, Lisa, I, I, I would say we're probably not looking at gutting uh, the planes, but what we, we have done in the past and in over this year, probably more than from my experience of what I've seen, is leverage some of those passenger airplanes to use that belly capacity um, that we typically use, Lisa, in, in a 2019, uh, a lot of our freight's moving on the belly of passenger airlines. So that's not something new. Um, and but but leveraging that passenger seating area uh, for capacity, some companies have done that. We've done that on on certain select um, occasions. And if we had to here, we would. But it's really leveraging that belly capacity that we would be interested in, in especially for the vaccine distribution. Uh huh. Now that's that's also very interesting. Um, I I wanted to sort of spend a, a few more minutes on the issue of temperature and the stability that's needed. You know, um, as you as you were explaining, so uh, some of the vaccines, as we said, you require extreme low temperatures like minus seventy uh, degrees Celsius. Some others, but but then can can also be stored at regular fridge temperature for for a few days. I mean, I think that's the case of Pfizer. I mean, some others, you know, we have Moderna probably can be transported at slightly um, higher temperature and 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 some others are, are coming up. But um, help us understand, I mean, for, for those deep 
um, for those requiring the deep freeze temperature, have you bought more super freezers? You know, how would those be transported to just ensure that the stability is there, that there's no damage uh, made to uh, the vaccine? No, Lisa, I think, so what What have we done? So um, I, I look at our entire supply chain, and I think it's really important, Lisa, for folks to understand that that it's not going to be one company that handles full end to end. It's going to be a, a combination of partners that have to make this successful uh, to get the COVID-19 vaccine out around the globe. What our sweet spot in at Kuninagel is we have a group called QuickStat that handles all uh, uh, clinical trial distribution and is handling clinical trial distribution for um, many of our customers that are exploring COVID-19 vaccines through clinical one, two, and three stages. And the reason why I bring that up, Lisa, is that having that connection with our customers early on in development, uh, that it gets us to learn a lot about their product. And we are shipping things at cryo temperatures, deep frozen, frozen, two to eight in that environment. And Lisa, you typically see in clinical trials, the use of deep frozen and, and frozen temperatures a lot because companies at that point are just in the development stage of getting that product out into in, in getting that product approved and they're learning about that product and they're putting that product down on stability testing to have data to see if it can be viable without any degradation at two to eight or our frozen temperatures. And I think what's happening in this scenario, Lisa, is that because of the acceleration, the need for this vaccine, a lot of companies are are moving from clinical in, you know, using proper mm -hmm. proper protocol but moving from uh, clinical quite quickly, and you see it published, typically it takes three to four years. We're doing this in six months and moving into commercial product. So I would expect all the companies that are in that stage, while they may come out at deep frozen, minus 22 to eight initially, I think you could um, um, predict that some of those products could come out deep frozen initially and then move into a frozen or a two to eight environment once they have better stability data. So, I, and I think from talking to different customers in industry, we would expect that. Now, what we're doing, Lisa, from an investment standpoint, uh, we have uh, our COVID-19, what we call our temperature pods. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna be leveraging temperature pods within our warehouses uh, to be able to hold that minus 80 or deep frozen as needed. And it gives us that flexibility to bring in additional pods if capacity is needed. Um, our hubbing that I talked about earlier in our warehouse space will have um, areas of the warehouse that can handle minus 20. And then obviously we will also have two to eight areas in our warehouse. So that gives us really a lot of flexibility as I talked about before in the warehousing. Those temperature pods will be very important also, Lisa, for our, the developing markets that you mentioned. So in countries where maybe the infrastructure is not there to be able to handle these temperatures, um, we're developing relationships and we're moving um, we've already got some agreements in place with countries to move some of these temperature pods into their into their country to be able to support a very short period of time um, need to store these goods as they're positioned um, for dispensing or, or um, you know access to, to the patients. Okay, but when we talk about temperature pods, I mean, are we essentially talking about containers that maybe have dry ice? in it to keep the sort of ultra low temperature? I mean, can you describe a little bit sure. more of these pods? Sure, Lisa. Um, so it, 
when you mentioned dry ice, uh, a lot of times when you're starting to move deep frozen, you're putting into a, a, a specific packaging uh, and where you add dry ice in. And that packaging, Lisa, will be qualified for a certain period of time um, that you want to keep your transit time or the full time in that packaging uh, under that amount of time. And that's where dry ice comes in. And when uh, when you when you're faced with longer journeys with dry ice, then you'll have re-icing stations. And we do a lot of re-icing across our network. We've done it in the past and we'll continue to do it. When I talk about temperature pods here, these are everything from home refrigerator units all the way up to reefer or trailer size refrigeration units that um, are, you know, have a, a compressor. Uh, you're plugging it in and it's a it's a full size refrigerator unit. Mm -hmm. It's just a little bit more mobile than building in uh, a permanent cooler. And so we're going down that path to be able to create that flexibility uh, for countries and companies to be able to um, to move capacity, move capacity around as needed to 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 make sure that the product is in the right spot around the world. Okay, no, that that's that's uh, that's useful. Thank you. Sorry, I mean just a, a little, an extra question on dry ice because, um, you know, I understood that some dry ice will be needed uh, for air freight. I mean, potentially at the beginning, uh, as we said, but I also understand uh, that you can't store too much dry ice in an airplane because it kind of produces gas you know and kind of reduces the oxygen level as far as i understand so um so is that an issue i mean there's even some people saying oh we might not even have enough dry ice i mean are, are those concerns warranted well i think i think the uh, as you're starting to see products i think it's going to come down to several things here uh lisa one is you're starting to see multiple companies start to share some initial data then i think that's really important as we as we look forward right is and then start estimating how much dry ice is needed now there are limitations uh lisa on passenger airlines and how many how many kilos of dry ice can be stored and that ranges by the size of the airplane and then if you start looking at freighter planes you can hold a lot more dry ice and um and and plan for a lot more dry ice on freighters which can hold many more pallets so those restrictions have to come into play when you're looking at um, how to move some of the products that will require deep frozen. But you can see in the news just recently, three products, uh, three companies came out with some data and one was deep frozen, one was normal freezer temperatures and one was two to eight. If that's the profile that's going to continue as the other companies start to come out, then I think we're going to have a mix. And once again, that flexibility I talk about becomes a very, very important. Yeah. Um, now, what we're Lisa, what we are doing, obviously, we we work with dry ice today, um, and in some of those airports that I mentioned before, the 32 that we've designated that have the airside solution, um, we are also looking at how do we store or how do we even make dry ice on the spot if needed for certain customers. So that flexibility is there, and I think a lot of companies are probably you know in similar um, roles as ourselves are probably also looking at that capability. Yeah, but I mean, in, in this, two things I wanted to ask you. I mean, first of all, I mean, when you talk about customers, I mean, in this circumstance, I mean, who are your customers? Are, are, are those the, the drug producers, so the pharma companies, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and all the others that are making the vaccines, or are these 
the governments that are paying, you know, ordering millions and millions of billions of, of vaccines. So who, who are you interacting with? So Lisa, I think our relationships sort of fold into both areas. I would say that in our, in our traditional pharma healthcare space, we mainly work with the manufacturers. Uh, Lisa, from this, the, remember I mentioned earlier that there's many parts that have to come together to make this successful. So Kuninagel works in that clinical trial space that I talked about earlier with QuickStat. And then once the product becomes commercial, we spend a lot of time looking at uh, products going into drug substance, drug substance to drug product uh, transportation, drug product development out into the market. And when I look at that scope, most of that scope is dealing with the manufacturers. Now, um, what we because of the size of Kuninagel and the number of offices and the countries we support, we also have teams that are focused on government relationships. And we've pulled that in, Lisa, to be part of our pharma healthcare COVID-19 response to be able to leverage that. And we're seeing responses now into certain countries helping to look at supply chain design through what uh, company countries are using as RFI requests all the way through these temperature pods that I mentioned earlier um, and helping design and seeing what part of the supply chain we can support on uh, with the countries. So we're definitely now seeing quite a mix. I also, Lisa, we have a emergency and relief logistics team out of Denmark that uh, many folks don't aren't aware of, but we've had that in place for many, many years to support um, issues that come up around the world, mainly in developing markets, hurricanes, um, uh, any type of natural disasters, uh, political disasters, et cetera, where we have to bring in goods, tents, clothing, et cetera. And we've pulled that now also into our COVID-19 response uh, to be able to make sure that those de developing uh, markets are served in the same way the developed markets when the COVID-19 vaccine comes out. Okay. Okay, no, that's that's uh, that's very useful. Um, I mean, in, in your simulation, uh, how many vaccines would you say would be delivered next year? I mean, I see uh, I saw a report by a competitor, DHL, that that estimates 10 billion vaccines by the end of next year. I mean, do you have a similar scenario, slightly different scenario? I mean, give us a sense of what you think is the scale. Yeah, Lisa. So. I think the scale for what we're estimating is between 11 billion and 15 billion doses needed around the globe. And the reason for that range, 15 billion, it really assumes herd immunity around the globe. So, um, and that number is estimated by the CDC to be around 70%. In talking to some of our relationships that we have that's serving the developing markets, there's some estimates there that maybe some of the developing markets will only get to 40 to 50% of full vaccination. So the 11 billion to 15 billion sort of takes into that, takes into account uh, that range. Now that 11 billion is gonna be really driven from a time standpoint is gonna be really driven by manufacturing capability. And then also how many companies uh, have a viable approved product. So we've estimated between 12 and 24 months mm -hmm. for that 11 to 15 billion. Uh, uh, number of you know doses to get out into the market, and that's like I said, that's really driven off of uh, the manufacturing pro process and how many companies are actually producing their product to get it into the market. Okay, so basically up to two years to vaccinate 
the whole word. And, and what happens after that? We forget about the COVID-19 vaccine. Wouldn't that be nice, Lisa, if we thought after two years it would be all gone, done and dusted? I think most of our customers, and Lisa, by no means am I an expert here on how long this is gonna, this, this is gonna last, but most of the customers that we're talking to are, are really referring to a, a two-phase process. One is for the pandemic response, and then one more of a commercial, a, a typical commercial product response. And I think that's what we're planning for as well. There'll be an immediate response to get as many product out the door to the global population that needs the vaccine. And then there'll be an ongoing support of this. And Lisa, if you, if you read about COVID-19, there's a lot of questions around, does it mutate, does it change? And, and we may be in an environment where this product, this type of product, will need to be in play for some time. And like I said, not an expert on it, but we're planning for the pandemic response and then a, a, a commercial response. And as I said earlier, that can happen after 12 months, that can happen after 18 months, 24 months. But what we're doing is making sure that we have the flexibility to support our customers uh, independent of, of what actually takes place over the next two years. Okay. I mean, just, just to wrap up, I mean, this fascinating conversation, I mean, we touched on many issues, um, you know, the, 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 the ultra cold storage, uh, the, the dry ice, I mean, the air freight versus road freight, I mean, many of the issues, the developing country question. Um, I mean, do you see any obvious bottleneck? I mean, is, is there at the moment, you know, you know, what are the sort of hardest bottlenecks that you guys are working on? I think, Lisa, what I would say to that is, I mentioned earlier that it'll be very interesting to see how many uh, manufacturers come out with a viable product and how many of those products make it into market. And that will really deter determine how, how much supply chain flow we have over the next 12, 18, 24 months. What I would also ask you, you brought up a very key point earlier around the governments and the countries. And we work in pharma healthcare, we work in a very regulated environment. And in a regulated environment, people like to have absolute numbers and data and information. I think with the COVID-19 vaccine response, I think we have to maybe do things a little bit different, meaning to share now and talk often. And I'll, I'll use that share now talk often to, I think we're starting seeing a lot of the manufacturers do that. And we're engaged with most of the manufacturers globally that are in the COVID-19 vaccine development stage. And I would like to see more countries also uh, reach out and and look to leverage uh, their partners globally and, and the, the industry expertise globally to ensure that all the countries are ready and that we've got the right plans in place. Even if it's not perfect data, the time now is to start having the conversations and collaborating because it's going to take a number of companies, another number of groups to make this successful. Okay, on this note, um, Robert Coyle, I want to thank you for joining us at The Exchange. I hope to speak again soon. Thank you for having me. That's our show for this week. I would like to thank my guest, Rob Coyle, and our producer, Freddie Joyner, in New York. And our final thanks go to you, our listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, Views Room, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.